First film I ever saw was The Greatest Show on Earth by Cecil B. DeMille. That was the first experience I ever had in the theater. My father said he was taking me to a circus movie, but I didn't register movie, I registered circus, and I stood in line with him in the cold sleet in New Jersey. And I had always imagined a circus taking place in a tent, not a big brick building. It didn't make any sense to me. I expected the curtain open and see real elephants, and a real lion tamer, and the curtain opened, there was a big piece of white material, and this flat image came on this white sheet, and it was the greatest show on earth. And my first reaction was that my father betrayed me. He took me, promised me a circus, and took me to something that I couldn't quite put my finger on, but was not, was not satisfying in any way. I couldn't smell it, I couldn't climb into it, you know, I couldn't be afraid of it. And as I'm watching the movie, suddenly I'm smelling it, I'm afraid of it, and I'm climbing into it. And by the end of the film, I was really jazzed. This professor of archaeology is about to leave the classroom for high adventure and romance. After nearly 20 years, the wait is over. Indiana Jones is back in theaters. Welcome to Indy at the Movies. Indy! Indy! At the Movies, a Star Wars at the Movies special presentation. I'm really doing it more than anything else so that I can enjoy it. Because I just want to see this movie. There's a submarine, there's a car chase, there's a motorcycle, there's a... Well, I keep going on like this, the giant boulder. We haven't even mentioned the boulder yet. It's just wonderful. In some major cities, fans waited in line all night to be the first to see Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I was exhausted after the first 20 minutes. Were you scared by any of it? No. It might be scary for real little kids, but I think it'd be good for, you know, seven years old or so. I remember exactly the cinema name and the afternoon that I went to see the first Indiana Jones. I just remember it always being on, just awe and excitement and danger. This is the franchise that I grew up watching. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade got the summer movie season off to a rolling boil. Well, he's a very good actor, Harrison Ford. He says the same with you, by the way. Well, he better I'm his dad. <laughs> Nobody can play Indiana Jones but him. It is, of course, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. It is on his way. Everybody can already feel the reverberation. It's not the years, it's the mileage, I think, is my favorite. It still works. <laughs> and the mileage is piling on. <laughs> it's the final bow for Indiana Jones. And together, they try to find this famous dial, the dial of destiny. Harrison loves this character as much as the audience loves this character. So we ask ourselves, what could be the next adventure? And in this case, it was what could be the last adventure. Indiana Jones will find it. The Nazis will take it from him, but not for long. Hello there, or should I say... Welcome to episode 23 and a new season of the podcast. I'm Stephen Danley, and with another member of the Lucasfilm family finally returning to movie theaters, it just felt like destiny to dedicate a special episode to Indiana Jones. And whether you consider Indy a close cousin, a half-brother, or a brother-in-law to Star Wars, the love for both sets of movies is interconnected and permanent for so many, myself included. You have all the obvious connections with the larger-than-life personalities in front of and behind the camera with Harrison Ford, George Lucas, John Williams, 
but there's just so much more to it that we can all sense when we take in these outrageous adventures on the screen, and especially with a large crowd of fellow moviegoers. So this is a limited engagement, a truly rare moment in film history where we're witnessing an absolute legend of a character and actor reunite and continue to kick ass and make us genuinely feel something over 40 years after it all began. That's cause for celebration, and I'm honored to have several friends that'll be hopping into the podcast playing with me to share their own exploits with Professor Henry Jones Jr. But before we take off and start making our way across the memory map, I'm going to open things up in the indie tradition with a quick prologue. Goleta, California, 1990. <laughs> My first Indiana Jones adventure ended up coming about in one of those moments where everything in life was formative. I was coming up on my fifth birthday that year, and our family had just moved into our first house after the arrival of my baby sister that past October. And my parents, and my mom in particular, had recently been swept up with the summer of 89 at the movies. She'd always told us about becoming obsessed with Tim Burton's Batman and how she'd routinely go to mid-morning matinees as a way to decompress. And another movie that came into that rotation was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which both of my parents were very, very into. When it came out on home video that following spring, they rented it from our neighborhood Captain Video and let me stay up with them to watch it one night. And all I can remember is being intrigued, seeing Han Solo play someone new, and, and then suddenly waking up terrified and alone on the living room couch in the dark from a nightmare that was clearly inspired by some of the ghastly bits in the third act. I'm pretty sure the dream involved decapitation. Perfect for a preschooler. And this combination of being simultaneously thrilled and petrified by a movie was a first, and something that I came to uniquely identify with Indiana Jones as I grew up. And there's something about seeing these movies when you're categorically too young that also seems universal among certain generations, which I'll really have to try and curb with my own daughter. We'll see how I do. My next encounter came two years later when The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles aired on TV for the first time. I was six at the time, and you know, credit to my parents, they saw that Indy was closer to my age and it seemed educational, so they recorded some of the episodes for me. And of course, the first episode where Lawrence of Arabia spooks Indy Jr. about cursed mummies in Egypt totally creeped me out, and I decided I would never watch it again. And I honestly didn't until just recently when the series was put up on Disney+, and it's a real trip to revisit the things that were so scary to your younger self. Where do we come from? Where do we go? It's one of the truly great mysteries, and the spark of most great religions. So, nearly all of them have an answer to what happens when we die. Which one is true? No one's come back to tell us. Mr. Lawrence. Oh, but Henry, if you should meet a mummy one night, you can always ask him. Meet a mummy? And ask him? Yes. When his spirit returns at sunset and enters his shriveled body. When he rises slowly from his dusty coffin and creeps out into the darkness. When he glides across the empty desert where nothing is heard but the cry of the jackal. And the shuffle of his bony feet across the sand. Shuffle, shuffle. Shuffle, shuffle. Wow. Mr. Lawrence. Then, if you should chance to meet him, it may be he will answer your question. Oh, but only if you return with him to his tomb. Mr. Lawrence, it's time we went to sleep. Anyway, by that summer, I had seemingly toughened up enough to get to go see both Raiders of the Lost Ark and The Last Crusade at a revival screening in our hometown movie palace. 
It was Saturday, August 29th, 1992, at the Arlington Theater in downtown Santa Barbara. And just a week earlier, I had seen Star Wars and Return of the Jedi on the same big screen for the first time. So to say this is a critical two-week period in my life is a major understatement. As far as I can remember, both the triple bills ran twice in one day, so we strategically saw the third movies in the afternoon ahead of the late showing of the first. My mom made a point of us avoiding Temple of Doom, which she deemed wholly not okay for us to watch in its entirety, and was probably, well, she was definitely right. A quick aside on Temple, I have vague memories of watching just the opening scene in Shanghai, and then the big bridge fight from a cable recording my mom had made for us on VHS, so the entire middle of it was a complete mystery to us until much later. But back to the Arlington. Crusade was familiar and exciting, but seeing Raiders for the first time ever, and in a packed house with the rowdy late-night audience on top of it, was nothing short of exhilarating from start to finish. My brother and I were completely blown away, and like many kids whose parents took them to see it in 1981, we were fighting to look through our mom's hands that attempted to cover our eyes at the most gruesome moments. We simply couldn't look away, and figuratively had our faces and minds melt. Throughout the rest of the 90s, the three movies became staples in our VCR alongside the Star Wars trilogy. It was like they'd always been there. It was like Indy had always been there, and he became a constant presence in terms of entertainment. Our parents were selected as extras in the amazing epic stunt spectacular on our trip to Disney World in the summer of 95. We happily waited and waited and waited in line to ride the single greatest theme park attraction of all time, the Temple of the Forbidden Eye in Disneyland and more on that later, and we obsessively tried to beat the Greatest Adventures Super Nintendo game, but never made it out of the Temple of Doom, at least without passcodes that we discovered somewhere on the early internet. Buried in the sands of nostalgia for decades now, those memories have indeed become priceless. And after years of reading wild online rumors of a fourth movie, I was eager to see Indy get back after it when I sat down once again in the Arlington for a midnight show of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in 2008. But I was older and admittedly weary after how disappointed I had initially been with Revenge of the Sith in the very same surroundings three years prior. I had gone into that with a clinically unhealthy level of internal hype and left crushed. With Crystal Skull, the residual mix of anticipation and anxiety once again did not serve me well, and as painful as it was at the time, the experience finally exercised the demon of expectation for me as a moviegoer and a fan. And man, has that been a blessing ever since. Just like with Star Wars, I have a love for all the movies, or at least elements of all of them, with plenty of acknowledgement of their problems and their ridiculousness. They're absurd and incredibly fun to watch, but what makes them last, to me anyway, is their imperfect hero created by George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and brought to life by Harrison Ford. And we're miraculously here again, with one more ride with the parting gift that is the Dial of Destiny. And I wouldn't believe it until I saw it, and despite all the noise and cynicism out there, I can't help but enjoy the fact that it's real. Okay, that is more than enough from me. Wheels up, it's time for the main adventure to take off. First stop is across the Atlantic with my friend and friend of the show, Mark Newbold, from Fantatrax and many, many other great things fandom. 
Okay, so when I first saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, I was 12 years old. I saw it on Video 2000 for the very first time, uh, which was a, a format we had here in the UK and Europe. It was, as I remember, my Christmas present 1983. It was that and the Return of the Jedi soundtrack on cassette. So, and there was a trailer for Temple of Doom, even though it wasn't a trailer, it was just the map and the logo. And Steven Spielberg and George Lucas are traveling the world to bring you Indiana Jones to the Temple of Doom. So that was my first experience of seeing Raiders was on home video. The reason I never saw it on the big screen was back in 1981 at the ABC Cinema in Cannock, just at the road from where I live now, about five miles away, myself and my best friend Paul Squire went to see a film. We didn't know what, the choice was Condor Man, or Raiders of the Lost Ark. Condor Man, famously a Disney film starring Michael Crawford, who later became known to world audiences for being the Phantom of the Opera, the first Phantom of the Opera. And basically, me and Paul, more me than Paul, had seen clips of Raiders, and it looked a little bit a little bit scary, a little bit sort of jumpy, which looking back surprises me, because I had a friend whose dad used to bring home horror videos and all sorts of stuff, and I watched everything, so... When I was 10, horror didn't bother me, but something I'd seen in Raiders kind of must have freaked me out on a trailer. And I said, oh, it looks a bit scary. Can we see Condor Man? So in 1981, summer of 81, I saw Condor Man and not Raiders. It would take me many years before I saw Raiders on the big screen. We'll get to that in a bit. So Temple of Doom was my first experience on the big screen, 1984. And same cinema, ABC in Cannock, here in the Midlands in the UK. Uh, went with my dad. Absolutely loved it. In fact, I think the whole family went. Mum and Dad and my sister Julie went. We all went and absolutely loved it. My dad thought it was one of the most exciting films he'd ever seen. This was now I'm 13, so now I'm post-Jedi. I'm into Lucasfilm. I'm getting Bantha tracks. Um, I'm reading all the magazines. I'm getting all the books and all, all that sort of stuff that has continued, really continued on for me. It's never stopped. And so I really got into Indiana Jones, the making of the the people behind it. It's the first film, I think, even more than Jedi, really, that I really got into that side of it because we were beyond Star Wars and I was looking for something else. And it would become Star Trek for a long time, but Indy would come along sporadically. Saw Temple of Doom again later that year uh, at our local cinema in Litchfield, which is where by that time I'd moved to um, and... Don't think I've ever seen Temple of Doom on the cinema since, to be fair, since since I saw it those two times in 84. Long gap, Temple of Doom, obviously, and Raiders are now out on VHS, the format that won the video wars. And 1989 comes around, and I'm now, what, 18. So I'm getting around by train. I haven't got a car yet. Pass my test, but I haven't got a car yet. Getting around by train, go to what was then my staple cinema with Paul, my friend who I didn't see Raiders with in 81. He would moved to Sutton Coalfield, which is about 15 miles away. I would get the train into the Sutton Odeon, beautiful, beautiful sort of 1930s cinema. We saw Last Crusade there. I remember it well because I've still got my ticket stub and I bought a cap, like a baseball cap with Last Crusade on it. Absolutely loved it. I mean, what a great summer 89 was with Batman was the other big one, wasn't it? Ghostbusters 2, Batman and Last Crusade. Didn't see any Indiana Jones on the big screen again until 2008 when Crystal Skull comes out. By then I'd been running a site called Lightsaber for eight, nine years at that point. So I'd done interviews with Lucasfilm staff and obviously a lot of Lucasfilm folks worked on indie and Star Wars. So I'd got known enough to Lucasfilm to, it wasn't given to me, but I, I asked the right people and they knew who I was. So they were good enough to point me in the right direction. Of course, it was all done through Paramount. Uh, to get a ticket for the press screening of Crystal Skull. I went with James Burns from Jedi News. Uh, this is before I 
finished lightsaber and worked at Jedi News for a while. So we met up, we wrote a review together, which I've recently put back out on Fanta Tracks. Unapologetically enjoy Crystal Skull. It's Harrison back in the role, looking great. Everybody brought their A game. Look, nothing to me anyway, nothing's ever going to top Raiders. Raiders is just in a class of its own. Temple of Doom made a good fist of it. Last Crusade certainly made a good fist of it. Crystal Skull is closer to the other two, if that makes sense, than it is to Raiders. As much as Raiders is that far ahead of the other three, if that makes any sense. Makes sense to me. So uh, so I enjoy Crystal Skull. And one of the treats of that, not only did me and James go for a bite to eat after and write our review at the uh, Rainforest Cafe, which was kind of fun. We also saw John Hurt on Leicester Square and managed to stop him for a few words. We had a, a ticket for the press screen and he signed mine and James's Crystal Skull press tickets, which much loved and treasured, especially now he's passed away means even more with a new film coming out and then i think it would be about 2010 uh, a wonderful fellow called dave tree who puts on a vintage star wars event down here called farthest from he put on an event at fordenbridge fordenbridge film and tv festival but on the evening he had organized with lucasfilm to put on a screening of a film in the hall at fordenbridge the choices were the animated Clone Wars movie or Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so, yes, we plumbed for Raiders of the Lost Ark. And fortunately, recently, I'd interviewed Robert Watts. And so I kind of kept in touch with him and saw him at events. Thankfully, he remembered me for a a long story reason that I won't go into because I have a very forgettable face. People tend to forget me as soon as they've met me. And I spoke to Robert at London Film and Comic Con and said, would you come down to Fording Bridge? Would you be our guest? Would you introduce Raiders? It's a special screening, private event. Would you come down and just speak for a minute or two because we'd love you to be our guest? And of course, you know, it's a special, special thing. And thankfully, he said yes. The evidence of that is not only did he come and talk and talked about work on the three films as was, he wasn't involved with Crystal Skull. He also brought the fertility idol with him, which was amazing to see that. There's a photograph of Robert with my wife, Ruth, in, I believe it's issue 129 of Star Wars Insider. We ended up in the pub over the road uh, until about two in the morning. Me, my wife, Ruth, Robert and Dave just talking, talking, talking about all sorts of stuff. Absolutely amazing night. Very fortunate. I did finally see Raiders on the big screen. This was a, a screen in a town hall on a big screen at the Symphony Hall in Birmingham. I think it was around about 2011 or 12, I'd like to say. It was Raiders with a full orchestra playing the music live. That was phenomenal. And then in 2012, they released, I think it was another, it was either a Blu-ray or a, or a DVD release of Raiders. I think it was the complete box set with all four. And they did a screening at the BFI on the IMAX at the BFI. And again, I was there for that. So got to see Raiders on a, on a big screen as well. So I've been very fortunate after the fact with Raiders. And then coming right up to the present, I did manage to get into the press screening of Dollar Destiny and without giving anything away. I think if you go in with an open heart, looking for a, a fun, action-packed Indiana Jones adventure that is very much at the elder end of his life of course i think you'll be satisfied i think you'll come out enjoying it it definitely wraps things up in the, in the best way i found it to be great action john williams is clearly having a ball it's a brilliant soundtrack mangold nails it ford's totally invested in every element of this film i really enjoyed it so Hope everybody enjoys that. But yeah, thank you for inviting me on. I love talking about Indiana Jones and uh, I've been fortunate enough to have some some very special indie memories. So glad to have the opportunity to share them with you.
man, that night out at the pub with Robert Watts sounds uh, simply epic. <laughs> Amazing. All right, we're flying back over the drink to Marshall College, or uh, Michigan, to hear from Jason Gibner from Blast Points. It was just awesome getting to run into and meet Jason and Gabe, along with Brandon from Talking Bay 94 on the Dial of Destiny red carpet a couple weeks ago. <laughs> They're all literally giants, and I'm rather hobbitish, so it made for a great group photo. And if you ever even have the slightest symptoms of indie fever, the best remedy is their indie-themed podcasts. Okay, here's Jason. Hey, Steven and Star Wars at the Movies. This is Jason from Blast Points. Driving to work here and just thinking about all the experiences going to see Indiana Jones movies in the theater. There's a lot of them, every single one of them, right up to the, you know, Dial of Destiny. So, you know, I saw, I was a young kid when I saw Rares of the Lost Ark in the theater. I can remember, clearly remember my dad telling me to cover my eyes when the arc opened up and the faces melted off and me peeking through my fingers to, to see the awesomeness of that still mind-blowing visual effect. I can remember the summer of 1984 and being obsessed with Temple of Doom. I remember seeing a critics screening, a press screening of King with a Crystal Skull early and just kind of having that movie to myself for a couple weeks before it came out and just really, really, really digging the heck out of that, that weird, weird movie. But I think my favorite and probably craziest indie theater experience is Last Crusade because it was, what, 1989 and I was 13 years old. I was in junior high and... It was coming out, and I begged my parents to take me that opening day. I think it came out on a Wednesday, if I remember right. I could be wrong with that. But anyways, I had school. I had school that day. It was like May. And I skipped school. I got a, a girl I knew with really good handwriting to write a fake doctor's note, and I walked to my parents' house, from my parents' house to the movie theater with my backpack on, saying I was going to school, and I didn't, I walked to the theater to see the first matinee of Last Crusade, and I was terrified that I was going to get caught, because here's this 13-year-old kid walking into a movie theater with his backpack on by himself to go see the new Indiana Jones movie. Our, and I remember an usher walking up and down the aisles like before the movie started for some reason and I was like, that's it, I'm caught, I'm done for but I wasn't I made it, and then by the time the movie ended by the time like the first matinee ended or something it was time for me to walk back home and I was so afraid that like somebody that knew my parents or something was going to catch me like walking down the street Ugh. so Anyways, and then that weekend, my whole family went to go see The Last Crusade together, and I had to pretend like I was seeing it for the first time. It was a nerve-wracking experience. But 
I remember it like it was yesterday. I love The Last Crusade. I genuinely love every single Indiana Jones movie. They're so special to me. I can't wait for everyone to see The Dial of Destiny. And yeah, thank you for this. It was so great meeting you last week. And I can't wait to hear what everybody else says. Okay, bye everybody. Next stop is the Pacific Northwest for another Last Crusade-focused memory from Ryan Bisey. I don't have any memories of going to see a Raiders of the Lost Ark or Temple of Doom in the theaters. I remember in the summer of 84, it was the year my, my family and I moved from California to Washington State. And, you know, there's Ghostbusters out and, and all that. And But I was excited for Ghostbusters. My mom was excited to see Indiana Jones. She loved Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, obviously... You know, I grew up knowing like face melting and Raiders Lost Ark and heart ripping out scene in Temple of Doom. But when Last Crusade came out, I actually went and saw that in the movie theater. I remember specifically we went to the, the Totem Lake movie theater in Kirkland, Washington, which doesn't exist anymore. It was not a great theater, but it was close to home. And when you're young, <laughs> close to home theaters are where you go. I saw a lot of different movies there over the years. Uh, a lot of good movies, a lot of bad movies, but anyway, for Last Crusade, I remember going to see it with extended family, uh, with my parents, my uncle, my cousins, uh, and that sort of thing, and I loved it. I just was enthralled by it the whole way. Um, probably if there had been merchandise out for it, I would have gotten home and looked for it afterward, uh, much like I did with other films at, at the time. But anyway, I, I enjoyed the heck out of it, but I, I do remember having slight issues with the ending. You know, I was raised Catholic here. And with some of the the religious portions toward the end where it's like, I felt like, well, Indy just found his, his faith and so now he can do this. Like it just took one split moment and now he's great. It just seemed a little little, little off. But the, the thing that totally surprised me didn't happen after this movie was it's like you see Indy drink from the Holy Grail and it's presumed like he's immortal, basically. I know the Grail Knight says you can't pass the by the Great Seal. It's the price of immortality. But... I mean, some sort of immortality. I know people talk about riding off into the sunset, showing it's the final movie or whatever. But I felt as, as, as a kid watching this movie that this meant, oh, they're going to make a whole lot more of these movies. They just said that he's practically invincible. They're going to keep making Indiana Jones movies. And, of course, it was a, a long time, what, 19 years before we got to Crystal Skull. But I love the heck out of Last Crusade. Uh, one of the other things I really remember is just my introduction to Sean Connery. I really didn't know who Sean Connery was before that. I'd never seen... Well, I knew who he was. Like, I knew of him. But I hadn't really seen Sean Connery movies. Um, I had never watched a James Bond movie. In fact, I had a hard time processing that this young person that I see as James Bond is the same person I see as uh, Henry Jones Sr. And uh, But that introduction to, to Sean Connery is came out of this movie, and I, I loved watching Sean Connery after that. It, it made me uh, really like his work, and... Ever since then, I've watched a lot of Sean Connery, but for most people, they're introduced to him through James Bond, and for me, it was as Indy's dad. So, um, And Indiana Jones continued. It wasn't until a, a few years later for me that I actually bought a fedora and really got into Indiana Jones. That was more like 1994. But um, I just, Last Crusade really started off as an, like, more of an indie fandom for me, and I'd still probably consider it my favorite Indiana Jones movie. I could admit Raiders of the Lost Ark is a better movie, but Last Crusade's probably my favorite.
in the last crusade uh, you get a chance to learn where things come from as far as India is concerned and the movie has a uh, has a finality about it well it's it's a finality for me you know I mean I, I don't I certainly you know don't uh, control the destiny of the Indiana Jones movies George could make as many as he, he'd like but it was certainly my graduation gift to be able to work on something like this and then in the, in the, in the best way possible say goodbye to all my old friends and move on the riding off into the sunset is very literal at the end of this film isn't it I built every clue into this movie I possibly could think of to let George know that we should retire this guy's number <laughs> I did all I could and speaking of the vitality and immortality of Indiana Jones the guest for our last visit on the map has some interesting thoughts on the subject but before we dig into that we're exploring the greatest thing Adventureland has ever had to offer in the Temple of the Forbidden Eye. Now dare to cross forbidden boundaries to the ultimate adventure. Come on! It's more than a ride. It's real. Now your fears have a name. The Indiana Jones Adventure, new at Disneyland. George Lucas worked with us on this project, uh, and he got very much involved with the fact that we were trying to put you in one of his films. We were trying to put you in the movie and make it like uh, Indiana Jones Adventure, three-dimensional. There's a lot of very, very exciting elements from the movies that are actually in the ride, but they're very real. This is a real... Event. Of course, it's very believable as you're going down into this creepy temple, kind of winding through the corridors, that you're going to run into the same things that Indiana Jones runs into. You're not watching a movie being made, but you are living the movie. I think half of the sensory input that comes to you about the authenticity and the believability is in the actual aging of it, to make it look like something that you believe had been exposed to humidity, moisture, heat. Almost half of the the difficulty and the work that has gone into this is not only coming up with amazing things that are totally believable, but then finding a way that no one can see how he did it. Needless to say, I am thrilled to welcome back Imagineering genius, Indiana Jones aficionado, and friend Tony Baxter, who my wife and I were able to share the Dial of Destiny premiere with, and I still can't quite believe that. Here's a discussion with Tony on his first exposure to Indy and some of the challenges he and his team faced in bringing the Disneyland ride to life, uh, as well as where he feels the future of everyone's favorite daredevil archaeologist could be headed. How did you first hear about Raiders of the Lost Ark? You know, where and when did you see it for the first time, and what were your initial impressions? Well, of course, we already had like three years of George Lucas, and so there was an excitement about he as a auteur, I guess, of uh, great fun projects, as well as American Graffiti. But I'm not sure I even connected those two. They were so far apart. But it was Pasadena, and it was probably a month or so before the actual opening date. And they had a sneak preview, and definitely remember it was with Excalibur. And I just remember everyone throwing popcorn and everything around in the theater, and it was complete bedlam and nobody was watching the movie at all but you knew you had to get in there before that movie started because there, nobody was going to leave the theater after Excalibur to see Indiana Jones so Skip Lang and I went 
And the title, I think, was off-putting in a way. I, it didn't inspire anything. Raiders of the Lost Ark. I love the Ten Commandments, but I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't even sure that it was connected with that. It could have been an ark, as in the boat Noah. You know, uh, saved all the animals, and I didn't know. And it could have been a Nazi thing. There was a little bit of talk about Nazis and all that. And I went, oh, that sounds awful too. And so. But it was, I think it was the main compelling thing with George Lucas. And of course, in the first 10 minutes after the rolling ball, we all knew we just had seen something that um, no matter what happened from that point on, we were not only hooked. I mean, it was like the guy was so charismatic. The um, setting was so rich. The dialogue was so comedic and yet dramatic. You know, it was like nothing anybody had ever seen. So cut to the end of it. You know, the the whole room is a buzz, like we got to see something that's, and it was just a public screening. It wasn't Disney or anything, because Disney wasn't involved. And I remember that we went to dinner and, uh, or what, yeah, it was, because I think we got in there about four in the afternoon for the Excalibur. So yeah, it was dinner. And I just remember the one comment, Skip and I were just going, what about this? And what about that? And then we just said, can you imagine if that was a Disney property and we could do an attraction based on that? How cool would that be? You know, and that was just from the first movie. I mean, there was no Temple of Doom with the roller car, uh, you know, the mine car chase or or the tank um, episode from the third one. So, you know, it was it was clear to me that it was I didn't know that it was going to be a franchise that didn't really exist other than with Star Tours. There's we were, I think, through the second one at that point. And um you know, so it, it, it was for what it was. It was something that I think I liked more than Star Wars because it was more. I mean, I love Star Wars and I loved Empire better, but uh, I think this I identified with Indiana Jones. I just felt like he, when he went back to being a teacher at school, you know, there was some sense of familiarity, kind of like Harry, the way Harry Potter works. It put his life in a uh, setting when it was normal. I guess maybe abnormal for Indy, but it's, the school was very normal to the audience. And I think that grounded it. So there was a starting point that we've either all gone through as students or many of us have gone through as educators. So it was um, a great, I think, um, setting for an adventure to go off in such a wild direction. You know, so that was the start of it. And and we, of course, dismissed that idea because it wasn't a Disney property. We hadn't even dared think about Star Tours or the possibility of that because Disney had not yet gotten to a desperate, desperate point that it would within two years uh, that made it almost a necessity to get involved with Lucas's properties. We can dive in, into that, um, you know, switching from thrilling movies to, to thrill rides. What was the biggest challenge in bringing the Indiana Jones adventure at Disneyland to actual fruition? Well, first of all, it, it sort of came uh, along with the invite to do Star Tour. So, you know, George was, we met with George up in Napa, not, yeah, the Napa Valley at uh, actually Ron Miller and Diane Disney Miller Winery, the Silverado Vineyard. And I remember George saying, you know, I went, he said he needed, looked into doing uh, regional parks and things. And he just said the, the cost is outrageous to start up from nothing and get to the critical mass that Disney already has. And he said, and then, you know, a little bit, um, you know, proud of himself. He said, 
everything I do is first class. I'm a first class organization. And then he said, I look at Disney and I see the same thing. So if I was going to partner with anybody on a project like this, it would definitely be Disney. So of course that right away, the first and primary element was Star Tours. And this was around early 84. So we had probably one, one indie for sure. And a second indie about to, if it wasn't right in the May area, right around in there, it could have been that Temple was something I was dreaming of seeing very shortly. But so we went forward with uh, Star Tours with all focus. There was no focus on Indiana Jones. In fact, I think the first um, opportunity was a studio tour in Florida where they uh, more or less just, we got to get something. We got to make use of this property. It's big. And uh, 89 was the same year that the third film came out, uh, Last Crusade. So having the Indiana Jones stunt spectacular uh, seemed like the way to go. But I felt like it was such an underutilization. It was perfect for a studio tour where the story needs to be, you are here to see how movies are made. And I think, you know, we move way far away from that now so that it's like any other theme park or with the Galaxy's Edge in that park in Florida. But I think that if you really wanted to be true to the not confusing the guests, then it wouldn't have Disneyland type rides. It would have something like the stunt show. So I felt that left us all the room in the world to take you into Indy's world if we were able to do it for Disneyland. And so um, the next part of it was, again, related to Star Tours, because Star Tours was the first introduction of a uh, motion you know, simulator in a theme park attraction. So while they were in the industry for you know training pilots, uh, no normal people had ever gotten on one of these things. And a company named Red Effusion in England had uh, been playing around with the idea of filming a roller coaster and then sinking their ship up to giving you that experience. And uh, it was impressive enough to say, this is how we're going to do Star Tours. Because I think the, the difference between Indy and Star Tours, Star Tours was a cinematic, very cinematic experience. Um, Indy was more real world. So you could imagine creating real world um simulations of that. Uh, so the simulator became an outrageous success. And I think the difference between Disney and what everyone else does is everyone else went, how can we build a simulator and what, you know, what can we throw on it with a short six minutes of film bounce you around? And they started appearing in malls, you know, for you'd pay $5 and you'd pick which film you wanted and they'd put it in a cartridge and you'd sit there and bounce around in the mall. And other theme parks and Dave and Buster's and everybody was doing it. And so our feeling about it in the beginning was the simulator is just a device like a movie theater or a ride vehicle. And what is going to make this last is going to be the software and the fact that it lets you go to a galaxy far, far away in a way that you can't do it at your home and, you know, it can't do it in a movie theater. And so it's, I think flattering to me that it's still there. It's still running. And we opened it in 87 and here we are. What is that? I can't, um, 13 plus 23. So it's probably about 35 years, something like that. And, um, it still has a line, you know, in some ways I think it's more entertaining than smugglers run, but that's another, um, so where, you know, while everyone else was out there chasing, 
a rainbow, you know, that, that Star Wars provided. And, you know, we got, I think in, um, what was it, Entertainment Weekly listed the 22nd greatest um, technical innovation in um, entertainment for the 100 years, you know. So that's pretty good when you put all the movie theater, everything that else is, is rolled into that, that we were 20. Um, so, but we didn't do that. Like we did do body wars in Florida, but the main emphasis was how would we take that ability to use motion the same way music and um, some of the dialogue and all the other things that affect your uh, experience. Nobody had ever had the ability to program motion so that it amplifies what it is that you're experiencing. And so the the quick thought was, how do we get it off of uh, bolted down to the floor with giant hydraulic rams that have to be air conditioned and all this because of all the heavy motion and star tours, the heat generated in the oil was, we literally had to send it off to a cooling plant and recycle it back constantly. Anyway, so we bought one of those cheesy mall simulators mounted it on a truck and had a towing uh, cart behind it with all the computer you know stuff on it and then that we ran it over at tonga we got one of those little model kits where you can paint a line on the ground and then the little robot will follow the line it was really jerry-rigged just to see and then we blindfolded people and we got one of our employees to act like sala and do a whole thing. Oh, Indy, we're getting too close to the cliff, Indy. Oh my God, Indy, watch out for that stairway. Watch, you know. And we put people on it, and you could definitely feel that you're in motion. And um, and then the dialogue would amplify what it was we wanted you to think about because we knew we're Disney. We can build sets like Pirates of the Caribbean or the Jungle Cruise. We know how to do that. So, um, but can we use this device to give you the impact of? really experiencing out of control motion because i think the the stunning part about the indie films is that it always seemed out of control and you know and that this is impossible but then it always managed to come back in line and you know it's like the quintessential mine car race in doom that where you literally leap across that thing and you go there's no possible way that would work but we want to believe it so much that you're willing to accept that. So converting that into a real place would work if we could create a ride vehicle that could repel from a snake, for instance, or go down a stairway. And the things that kind of you do emotionally reacting to all this stuff, we had to kind of get the ride vehicle to do that. So I think that was the critical part in our path. I mean, you might say that we and we did consider the minecart chase as the um obvious one to do in a theme park but then you're limited to four people and when you run the math and all that that works out about like snow white or you know, peter pan or something and you knew you, you have to balance that with the demand when you say we've got indiana jones you know twenty five thousand people are going to show up at the gate every day to ride it and if only 1200 an hour can go on it you can do the math and see that uh, that would not that would not work. So we came up with the troop transport, which was sort of based on another chase in the first film, you know, where Indy went under the truck and uh, it was again out of control and go, that's not possible. And you can't do that. And you can't survive all these things, but it's Indiana Jones. So 
that seemed like it was real close to what we were coming up with by mounting this small simulator on the back of a flatbed and driving it around in a warehouse. So um, that kind of moved to the forefront of this is what we're going to attempt to do. And um, we turned it over to engineering for 18 months and said, when you've come back with something that you think can run from eight in the morning to midnight every day of the year and not break down terribly, um, then we'll start developing this show around it. So it kind of was, you know, the chicken, one of those chicken and egg things. But we decided that the Achilles heel is the ride vehicle, not the show, because the the films, you know, probably by now we were in way past the second film and probably up there by the third film when we were starting to explore it. And uh, we knew we had so much material that you could do. And they're all so iconic that the public would um, respond. Just we know how they'd respond if we could give them the feeling that they were experiencing with the same out of control, random, chaotic nature that uh, the films had. So, yeah, they that was where it ended in engineering's lap. And they did call us back and said, we think we got it. So that that was the beginning. No, it's yeah, it's controlled chaos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The show around it, obviously, yeah, that that is a, a huge success in terms of production design and all that. But what stepping outside of the vehicle, what element of the attraction was the most satisfying to actually pull off? Like, what was the the blue sky dream that that did end up working the best in your mind? Well, there were. I think there's three. The majority of it works fine in the same way that Pirates and the Haunted Mansion and uh, Rise of the Resistance. They're all so environmental. And, you know, just looking at the Imperial walkers in the rise, they don't have to do anything. You just go, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm in this room. So the the giant Mara, you know, chamber in the middle and the bridge and all that, there's just a visual iconic nature to that. But the three that to me, I think um, I was really, wow, we we pulled something off that can't be done. And two of them have been... um, ruined i would say since the initial and hopefully there'll be changes at disney that get us back to these things because you you know indy isn't dependent on you know figures like the haunted mansion and pirates in particular a small world it's dependent on set pieces and so you can't afford to just say oh well we can do a simpler version of that but the first one was the choice of of riches or youth or um, eternal or visions of tomorrow. And we did that by moving massive amounts of the room that you were in so that it absolutely, you know, was that you were either going in the left door or the right door or the middle door. And I loved at the very beginning of the internet back in the late nineties, they would get on there and argue about, well, I've been uh, to the future and I've been to gold, but I've never gone to eternal youth. I don't think it really does that one. And then someone else said, oh my God, no, I've done youth, but I've never done it. You know? And so it was an absolutely a hundred percent. How do they do that? Because the actual ability to move you onto different tracks could be done. And we do it at the storage area just before you leave. There's a switch there where we can take, but it means you have to build a whole nother building of track for that environment. And we thought if we can take the first three scenes prior to you breaking the rules and looking into the eyes of Mara and reconstructing them with lighting and set, you know, changes and whatnot, so that you absolutely think you took one of those three paths. And then because of your stupidity, going to the gates of doom, you know, 
And we came up with a, a corker there that as long as you don't look in the eyes of Mara, you're going to get your your rewards. But we, it's in such a way that we know you can't see the other 12 people and someone for sure has looked into those eyes and has sent us careening into out of control mode. But anyway, so that was the first one and it worked for quite a long time. And then someone got a harebrained idea that you could do projection mapping, which is so now overused on everything uh, from great monuments of the world to uh, theme park fireworks shows and all of this other stuff. So it's not it's not a miracle anymore. It's just like, oh, they're mapping the castle or whatever, Notre Dame. So they put that on just the center door and locked off the room. They said, well, we just changed the projection on the door. And I said, no, you're always going in the middle. So there's no sense that, wait a minute, the last time I was in here, I slammed up against that wall and we went in that door over there. And this time we're way over here, it slammed against this wall. And it was uncanny because it was a pie wedge that was, you know, going back and forth. The illusion was perfect. The second one also, it lasted only about a month and a half, but uh, my neighbor was in um, refrigeration and uh, we were sitting, having dinner one night. And I said, you know, the only thing that can duplicate a big avalanche of rocks falling uh, from a blast of Mara's, you know, death ray or whatever would be ice because, um, you know, ice is rock. It just has a very low temperature. And when it breaks and shatters, it breaks just the same way as a rock would. And with sound effects, you could easily intensify that. So I said, um, how much ice would be the maximum that you guys could do? And he said, well, for the Salinas Valley, when they pick crops and everything, we're just running it up a chute along with the, the broccoli and whatnot. So it's constantly laid on beds of ice and broccoli. And I'd say it's over a hundred pounds and and we needed a hundred, we needed it to deliver every 18 seconds because that's how quick a ride. And he said, oh yeah, I could get a hundred pounds, no sweat. So we went and uh, we colored it with tea, a tannic acid. So it had a brown, like all the other rocks, you know, and it worked beautifully. But um, what we hadn't anticipated is when it fell and broke, and it broke right in front of the vehicles. You can still hear those sound effects and you can see Mara's eye light up the ceiling, which is stupid because it lights up where the where the rocks were gonna come out. So they should turn that off. But it fell perfectly, all of it worked, but it built up huge, kind of like an avalanche at the bottom, which every 20 minutes or so would cascade down into the pools, which was, all of that is fine. What it wasn't fine was it stayed as ice down at the bottom rather than having melted. And we thought between the fire and all of the, it would just flow over to a, a catch basin where it was then recompacted and set up to the top. So it was combined with um, new ice and then the, the compressed ice and everything. And so that was all worked out, but the, the, the maintenance workers had to get into the water at the bottom, which was freezing and chew it up and then get the chunks moving on down to the uh, the catch basin thing. And so they said, well, we're not gonna do that. So they turned it off. And I said, well, did you ever think about heating the water so that, you know, it gets back to the point where it's all melted enough, you know, and, and get that balance so that it's not collecting and freezing. And then, uh, then we could move it back up. And they go, well, we're not gonna pay the people to come down from uh, Canada who got the bid. So my guy next door neighbor here in Anaheim, 
was outbid by a Canadian firm that put in their contract, you'll pay round trip and housing and blah, 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 every time we need to come and repair it. Whereas my guy would drive eight miles over to the park and have his staff work on it. But so the combination of not having a um, guarantee that was usable and the fact that the maintenance guys at Disneyland weren't going to go in there and they said, oh, the ride is so good anyway, so you, you don't need it. So that we lost that one. The third one is, of course, I think the rolling ball, which ends the attraction. And that to me was genius. And um, it's something that works so incredibly well when it works. But there again, it's been down for quite a bit. They just reopened the ride. And yet I wrote it after that twice when it was working and once when it wasn't working again. And there's a combination of events in there that makes it amazing. And um, if you've ever gone through a car wash where you put your car in park, I think, and then the room moves around you, the first thing that happens is you get this eerie feeling that you didn't put your car in park and that it's somehow drifting forward because when the whole room is moving like that beside you, that makes you feel that you're moving forward. And when it comes back the other way, it makes you feel like you're you're moving backwards. So I videotaped it and I said, um, I think we can achieve two things. We can peel around the corner towards the rolling ball and see the um, whole building in its reset uh, format where the entire room around the ball is moving towards your uh, car. So that doubles the speed of, of you getting to it. So then we put on the brakes to hopefully have Indy jump down into the car. And then that turn in turn starts the ball rolling. Now we reverse the whole thing so that we're going from us back. So the room is moving back away from our car. The car is moving forward, but very slowly. But the effect is when Indy says, back up, back up, you know, uh, it really feels like the vehicle is going in reverse because its relationship to the walls is um, that, that there's more acceleration backwards than there is forward. We're also raising the vehicle off of its, so the wheels are down here and, and it sort of rides like that. And then the wheels start going down under the ball, but we keep the car way up flat. So you're aimed right at the ball. And then at the last minute when the ball gets there, bam, it goes down and uh, we go underneath it. And so it was one of those, everything works, you know, all of this works. And um, when you combine that with the extensive giant rooms that you go, oh my God, I can't believe they build that. And little tricks like the bridge ropes that um, shake and the sense that it's not a concrete, you know, uh, roadbed, but it's a rickety, and I even had a point in the programming where it feels like one of your wheels broke a flat and, and the thing kind of hangs there with one wheel and down in the, well, all that's induced by the bridge ropes and the programming and the car and the sound effects. And there again, they're not maintaining that, that bridge uh, shake either. That didn't come back after the, uh, but it, you know, to me, the ride success was, it was from beginning to end, how did they do that? From how are we going in three different doors, you know, and then we keep the ride vehicle running like a Jeep until it hits Mara and you've you've uh, violated the, the thing. And then all of a sudden it jerks out of control and it's that comes out of left field because everyone's going, wait a minute, I wasn't I was not prepared for this. And and then the giant room and the rocks falling out of the ceiling and you know the rickety bridge and 
the snake that jumps out and, um, you know, probably the only thing we didn't get for opening day was the, the rats down in the bottom that you know, kind of went, eh. and we had such good ideas for that to fix it, but never got to do it. So that's, that's a long answer there. The three things would be the switching doors, the, um, of course the rolling ball, and now I'm losing my, oh, and the rock fall. Those were the three that uh, defied the logic we all know and have to live with in the real world, you know, but you can't do that. If you use foam rubber for the rocks, like Universal did in an avalanche effect, way, within like a couple of months, you've got rolling balls because they, they uh, smooth themselves off to where it's just a lot of basketballs rolling down. Whereas the rocks break, you know, they break and then they melt and then we glue them all back together. And it was something that seemed like nobody, nobody would ever figure out how this is done. You know, so that those were the three that I think were the fact that it still works with two of them not working. Um, pretty, pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, something that I've always really appreciated in that ride is the music and the music editing and the timing, it, it's just like you were living inside one of the movies. And, you know, pieces from all three are just impeccably blended throughout. And I, I don't know, I, I always pick up on music in any ride. And then that particularly, I, I can pick out each little piece and where it comes from, but it, they're just so seamlessly stitched together. And, and I'm sure you know, your team was keenly aware of that in terms of trying to make the ride immersive, but but also cinematic kind of a combination of both but be curious if you have any memories of the music side of things with indiana jones the music is fantastic in the films you know it's one of the when you look at everyone has that the march but then they add something like the march of the children and temple of doom and the the kind of uh farewell to indie you know thing that's in the last crusade all three of those films topped the one before it and bringing you what you love from the original one. Like in, there's a quiet moment, in, uh, there's very few quiet moments in Temple of Doom, but when Indy has recovered uh, Willie Scott and, and Little Short Round comes up to him with his bundle of goodies and he says, I love you, Indy. And then John Williams wrote the most beautiful, sympathetic, and it's only less than a verse da, 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 da. and I just almost cheer up every time I hear that it's so beautiful You go, how would you know to do that with something that was written as a march? Only Meredith Wilson did that with the 76 trombones. Da, 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 da. It was also good night, my someone, good night, my love. And I thought, that's miraculous. Anyway, that's a good example of the, I think, the essence of what John Williams wrote. Secondly, we had a ride vehicle that we now had invented that allowed us to program and experience, not just with lighting and sound effects and things that you saw, but what you felt. And feeling is both um, physical, but it's also emotional and carried a lot through music. And so in that regard, we were very lucky to get Richard Bellis uh, to take the raw material that John Williams gave us and then literally ride that vehicle over and over again until he learned 
the movements and the pieces that he could work with and exact accentuate and stretch out and build emotion so that we know that people in the rides are more or less screaming and yelling. It's not like in the theater where you're quietly eating popcorn. You're like, oh my God. So what the only thing that really can punch over that is music, you know, and plus what you're feeling and looking at. But so music can break through because you don't have to listen and, and go, what did he say? I can't quite hear that. That's not important. You're just getting the rhythm or the the tension or the the beats. And I, I think, you know, it's it's interesting because John Williams had around two hours for each of the films that he did. And Richard had, you know, five minutes, you know, from beginning to end. And not only that, but we gave him some yardsticks. Like I said, we can't move out of the load unload with music playing because that'll just destroy the reality of this adventure really happening. So we had to create a completely convincing combustion engine starting up and moving through gears and getting into the beginning of the ride. And we had to wait for an emotional moment. And that was everybody disobeying at the beginning of the ride and looking into the eyes of Mara and the vehicle spinning out of control. Now you're caught up in something's emotionally happening to me and I'm not paying attention to how realistic this is. You just want it to be emotionally driven. And so at that point, as the car spins out of control, we bring in the score and drop out the, the real sound no the engine noises. And from that point on, it's a very, very beat by beat orchestrated experience where everything you're seeing and feeling is completely choreographed to what you're hearing and uh, amplified. I think it it doubles the experience. And, and George himself was often fond of saying, you know, music and sound effects are half of a motion picture experience. And uh, this is the first time in this ride, Richard was able to um, score it to the emotional uh, experience that the guests were having, whereas in Pirates or It's a Small World, Music is a huge part, but it's just going on, irregardless of what uh, the guest is experiencing in the boat. Uh, but in indie, all the beats that he's created amplify exactly what we have programmed into the vehicle and what we've given your eyes to look at uh, around you. So um, it's unique in that regard. And maybe there's been some attractions since then that have the same capabilities um, that Disney and, and others have done. But I believe we get the credit on Indiana Jones for being the first one that actually took you through a physical experience with a score that is beat for beat what's happening to you physically. Yeah, it, it's it's perfect. It's really one of my favorite things about the ride. You know, to bring things full circle here, you, know, you and I both got to see Indiana Jones off at the Hollywood premiere for, for Dial of Destiny last week. Yes. Um, that was just an unbelievable experience that it was. I was so glad to be able to share with you. And, you know, coming out of that, where do you see the concept of Indiana Jones going in the future now that Harrison has essentially hung up the hat and the bullet? Well, I mean, I'm always, I always, upset people because I think in, in ways different, you know, and I know that's like, I'm left-handed and probably that means you're left brain oriented or whatever all that stuff is. But so I used to, you know, I remember coming to one of our leaders, um, Frank Wells asked me up to his, he had a 
five acres in Malibu where he had horses and everything. <laughs> I didn't know why I was being invited on it. I had not in that, not in his league or anything, but we rode the horses and we get up to the top and he goes, so, you know, um, I'm 65. He was 65 years old. And he said, um, or in the sixties goes, I won't live enough long enough to build a forest here to keep from looking at Pacific coast highway with all the traffic and everything. And I was wondering, you know, you're in this kind of, uh, you know, uh, profession where you come up with cool ways to see things and what would you do so that I can have this trail completely like I'm in, um, some far off, you know, uh, you know, un, unspoiled real estate. And uh, I said, without looking at all those cars down there. And I said, pause for about five minutes. And then I said, have you ever thought about riding the horses in the opposite direction? <laughs> you know, like, so come up that way. So the road is behind you. And then he looked there, you know, with that kind of like, why didn't I think of that? And then he goes, I knew I brought you here for a reason today, but it's sort of that ability to look at something and say, what else is there? And so I'm going to veer off here to talk about Uncharted, the game, which had an obvious indie influence in it, the PlayStation games. And uh, they were verging on photorealistic in the portions of it that are animated by the company and uh, not by you with your gaming stick where it becomes all, you know, um, video game looking. But there were some emotional scenes with uh nathan drake and his wife elena and um and their daughter and the end and whatnot i was hoping that they would have done what walt disney did when he realized you know he made great success with mickey mouse and the cartoons but then rather than being satisfied with that he went on and created snow white you know which forced them to learn artistry and, and push the media of animation you know in a huge new direction so I was hoping with Uncharted, because it was so close to photorealistic, that you'd move it on and create a uh, Nathan Drake that could perform in movies from now till the end of time. The other thing that I think would be exciting about that, and Nathan Drake is just a metaphor for Indiana Jones in a way, um, if you imagine these characters going on with multiple adventures and not having to worry about aging out, this would be the perfect way. And as an example of this, I saw that um, Darth Vader helped me here. Um, James Earl Jones? Or yeah, he just sold his voice to Lucasfilm. So that means forevermore, you know, we're going to be able to have Darth Vader uh, exactly as he was because AI, I've got a, a couple of people that sent me AI samples of voice duplication where the all the intonations and all of the gesturing that these original people did, the computer, if it has like about a 20 minutes of sample, can duplicate the the whole way they speak and 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 whatnot. So I got a somebody sent me a welcome to Friday movie night here at my house done by Jack Wagner, the famous voice of Disneyland for like 25 years. And it's that's uncanny. And the poor guy's been gone for 20 years now. So they did it just from recordings, uh giving sampling. So you know all the what I'm trying to get at is you take AI you take uh, computer generated images and real time manipulation of data, you know, and instead of saying, well, we are where we are, you know, you've got to say, let's gamble here and push it forward and try to make the snow white. And so whether it, I guess, you know, whatever, um, I can't remember the company that did the Sony uh, Uncharted series, but they decided it wasn't maybe ready for, or they didn't want to risk 
trying to do a movie that way. But the indie, it could be that we could have Harrison Ford performing forever in that way, because just as you can get enough mannerisms in the voice, it'll probably be just about as easy to get the mannerisms in movement uh, by you know, using a recording of all of the different things that were his sort of, you know, uh, plate. So, I mean, a lot of people, that's all very controversial at this point in time. But, you know, the way things are, they start out as like, oh, that's terrible. You never do that. And then it becomes the way things are, you know, and you start thinking about, you know, um, you know, the the old Betty Davis and, and people from the past um, doing a new movie. You know, it's it's that's all there and somebody has to be bold enough to make that kind of a decision and it's kind of the decisions that elon musk and various other people walt disney made steve jobs they made these kind of things where you go boy you know what if that doesn't work and you can't you can't really think that way you've got a chance it because then the next step which with movies struggling and video games kind of peeking out the price for either one of them like the new harry potter uh hogwarts legacy game which is really incredible it's very cinematic and the characters in it are again very close to uh photorealistic and you create your own character and you live in hogwarts and it's every kid that grew up from 2000 till recently their dream of getting to be at hogwarts so you know you start saying push these things a little further and you get a combo, a new product. That's a product that you see it in the cinema. And for those of us that are oriented to be more passive, that's fine. And then you can still buy it as a disc or, or uh, download it and view it that same way. But you can also attach it to a gaming console and go anywhere inside that movie that you want to go, but that they didn't go in the movie. So you go, why didn't you go in that cave over there? I want to see what's in it, you know, and you could go there. So those are the kind of things that excite me on, on one side. On the more practical, everybody else does it. Why aren't we doing it? There are a lot of actors that could take that role the same way that James Bond. I'm not, um, I love Harrison Ford's performance. And of all the actors, I think um, that I look back on, He's probably the one that captivated me the most because of, I don't know, his personality, his, there's a little bit of every one of us in him. And, um, and I think that's why he, he is more approachable as uh, characters that he takes on. But nonetheless, I was very impressed um, with Bradley Cooper, uh, who did a movie about a year ago called Nightmare Alley. And uh, the first 20 minutes of that film you know, I look, I was kind of looking away watching and I go, Oh my God, is it Harrison Ford? No, it's, he had the same hat on and everything. And it, it just got me thinking that I've seen Bradley do a full range of things from, I mean, at one extreme is rocket raccoon to the other extreme of um, the, what was the war epic he did uh, about the soldier who um, lost his life after coming home, big, very powerful performance. And, there again, that ability to have that range. And he's very comedic. I just saw him in Dungeons and Dragons, Wharf, you know, and like he isn't above like coming down to that role and, and being humiliated almost in, in the role, you know, which was a very depreciating uh, kind of performance, you know, the Amazon style wife, you know. And uh, so I think there's been a little, you know, and Harrison has been part of that saying nobody can do it but me. Um, I, I don't think that's quite fair. I mean, you know, if you don't give anyone else a chance or you pick the wrong, we all know movies where they pick the wrong person, even Bond. We all have variations where 
uh, we go, well, that was a good bond and that was not a so good bond, but with a proper handling and the and then getting back to how you write for that, it's a very, it, it looks like easy to write for Indy. And the way that Stephen and George said, oh, it's just a, a pay on to those old, you know, serials of the 40s and, and everything. No, it is not because we don't watch those. We're not still watching those. And Indy's now, you know, approaching 40 some years. And we're still excited about that first movie. And and so are young people. So there's something in it that those serials and the things that, you know, they said they were paying homage to are, you know, don't have it. And that's a combination of Harrison, the music of John Williams and uh, the directing of Steven Spielberg. Everything about it was um, challenging our perceptions of what you could do with film. So that's why I, I like the idea of I'd like I think Indy would be a perfect character to take to the next step of generated imagery, uh, and that would be one direction to go where you go oh my god I can't. because in the new film about twenty minutes of it we are looking at a generated version of Harrison Ford, and you go it's I didn't find a problem I don't know about you but I really liked that part I, I said wow it's really like an original indie film. I know people are going to go, well, I could t tell that his eyes were this or that. I didn't have that. I felt like every moment in that part was probably one of my favorite parts of the new movie because it had that signature stamp of this is Harrison Ford and it's this in, in this series and it's got John's music. And but uh, so that doesn't fear me. I could I would have I would like to see a two hour movie with that Indiana Jones in it. I'd be fine with that, you know, and it doesn't bother me at all. So, you know, what does that take at this point? Some money probably takes, we certainly have enough recordings of Harrison saying every word that would needed be needed by a computer to have him spit out the dialogue for a new film without even being on the set. Um, and well, acted well. I mean, that that's what blew me away by this stuff that, uh, because it's using his way of acting. You know, that's what the computer analyzes and puts into the way it says the words so um i'm not like oh it's over and you know harrison is too old to play the part or whatever i just think you know i, I really like what uh, james earl jones did in saying i am very proud of you know mufasa and of darth vader and i would like those to go on so i'm going to literally ensure that my voice can be used for all time if that is the voice you need it will be available to use it. So I, I'm i very strong on that. So if we believe that Indy is a strong enough character that um, he deserves to continue, then you've got to like let your guard down on some things and welcome some possibilities to make um, a new Indiana Jones that whether he's created digitally or he's a new actor, uh, just that we all have to be accepting that, that that's progress. That's how uh, we grow, you know, and things get better. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see what happens over the next few years. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you again for coming back on the podcast. It's always great to have you and great to talk to you. And uh, yeah, I, I can't wait to, uh, I know the ride's not quite the same, but I, I cannot wait to get back on there. Well, it improved a lot of things. I, you know, like all curmudgeon designers, we only uh, look at the things that bother us, you know, working the way we wanted to. You just go, yeah, okay, that's fine. But why isn't that doing what it should be doing? Right. 
Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I told you when I saw you, but our, our daughter is already just waiting to be tall enough to ride the ride. So she just she asks about it all the time. So we will we will get to get her there at some point. And I've got tickets for the fifth film again on. Uh, the, well, it's supposedly the opening night, but we all know it was on Thursday. But we're going on Friday to the Chinese. I saw Temple of Doom in the Chinese theater. And that whole proscenium with there's a god up above sitting on a throne. It looked, it was like extending the border from Molaram and the big temple, uh, you know, with the thuggies, <laughs> the colors, the red lighting up there and everything. So it's the perfect place to see an indie film, you know. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, we're, we're going to, I'm going to take my dad to the Arlington in Santa Barbara over the weekend. So yeah, that's where I saw all the other ones. So it's, it's a tradition. Yeah. Now that's the same now with me and, and uh, the Chinese, the Chinese, they've remade it into a tremendous IMAX facility. So it's uh, the best you can see a film in L.A., I think. It was pretty good the other night in the Dolby, though. Yeah, it was. Yeah, we'll look forward to it. Um, well, I'll, I'll let you get going. Thank you again. OK. All right. statue topples forward right toward Marion. Indy riding it down the whole way. I'm going to get some mustard. All right. Okay. Suspense is really killing you, huh, Harrison? Okay. This is the best part. You left me at the best part. Thanks so much to Tony, Ryan, Jason, and Mark for playing a part in this downright blast of an episode. I hope you had fun too. And seriously, if you love Indiana Jones, revel in this chance to see Harrison Ford giving the character his all on the big screen right now. He absolutely nails it with grit and grace. And whatever the future holds, one thing we know for sure is that these chances don't come around often. Things around here will be getting back to a galaxy far, far away soon with some fun podcasts planned for the rest of the year. And in the meantime, if you're on Facebook, be sure to join the community over at the Star Wars at the Movies group, and you can follow the project on Twitter and Instagram as well. And I'm on Twitter at Stephen B. Danley. The full show notes with lots of pictures and all the links uh, can be found over on the main website, StarWarsAtTheMovies.com. And if you have a minute to leave a rating and review wherever you listen to this, that would mean so much. Until next time. Indiana Jones. Adieu. <laughs> I feel fine. I feel great. I'm very happy with uh, with uh, what we did, and uh, I'm glad it's over. It's the toughest job I ever had.